Hey, beautiful people, welcome back to the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast. I'm so glad to be back from one, from my one-month hiatus. Hiatus? Is that how you say it? Yeah, hiatus. And I'm back. Uh, I've just been super busy with work. I've been in the training department and also flying at the same time. I've been traveling back and forth, and it's just been a lot going on in my life right now. And, but I am back. I'm super excited to be back because I'm really pumped about this episode. I have recorded stuff over the past month I've recorded. I've sat down and recorded things, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I just ended up deleting it or storing it for future use. But I didn't want to make another episode about another incident. As you know, there's been a lot of close calls and incidents happening in aviation. And I just, I feel like the the show was becoming a trend of just covering those. And I didn't want to make that a thing. So in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about something that no one else is talking about. So you are going to hear it here first on the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast. So I'm really excited about that. And also, good news is that I've decided to take a leave of absence from the training department and my leadership has been very generous to give me some time off so I can go fly the line to really put a dent on my logbook because my goal is to upgrade here before the end of the year. Uh, the opportunity is there and I'm going to take it and I want to upgrade to captain. Uh, so that I'm taking that, taking the bull by the horns and really going to take advantage of that and hopefully going to be a captain here before you know it. Anyways, let's get started. So in the aviation industry, as you know, safety is of utmost importance. However, in the past few months, we have witnessed a concerning increase in aviation incidents, including multiple runway incursions, which you've heard me talk about it here on the show, near misses, and even a fatal accident on January 1st when a ramper got ingested into an engine of an Embraer 175. Yikes. And last month, the acting director of the FAA, Billy Nolan, called for a safety action or what is it, safety call to action that brought together industry leaders and experts to explore the root cause of these incidents and develop solutions to prevent future disasters. As members of the aviation community, it is essential for all of us to participate in finding a solution. And today, I will discuss what all these incidents have in common and why it is crucial for us to take part in the solution. Let's go. Hey folks from the flight deck, this is your captain speaking. Welcome to the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast, where we talk everything aviation. I am your host, Manny Ramirez. It's always a pleasure to have you on board. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back. So let's get started. So the, this safety call to action that happened last month, the FAA revealed some alarming factors that led to recent incidents in our system, such as staffing shortages and, te and technological drawbacks. However, they're still analyzing a critical human factor component that might have greatly contributed to these events. And I, I really, I truly just wholeheartedly agree. And addressing this issue could be the hardest, but also the most crucial step in ensuring safety in disguise. And I could not agree anymore. And that's why I'm here to talk to you today. So before I continue, I want to kind of paint a picture to you. And I want to kind of build a foundation for this whole story, okay? So before COVID, the aviation industry was experiencing its safest period in history. However, due to lack of investment in infrastructure and staffing, we were masking a potential issue that later became apparent. And we started seeing this with the little mini meltdowns that Southwest had over the years and the 
big meltdown they had like the week before Christmas. COVID caused layoffs in early retirements. We basically got rid of a lot of our experienced employees. So the industry came to a screeching halt around March of 2020, and we laid off or furloughed a lot of the experienced employees. So we dumped all of our experience off the wayside, right? And now we fast forward two years, and the industry recovered faster than we could ever imagine. And we had to play catch up. So we already had a pilot shortage or a staffing issue in the entire industry. And now we had to recover by hiring a bunch of people. And now the problem there is that because we lost all of our experienced employees, the guys that have been there, the guys and gals that have been there for 10 plus years that have seen it all, they were not there to provide that mentorship and experience to the new guys. So now we have employees that have been at the company for less than a year training these new employees just based off SOPs and policies, which cool, that's good, but they're not providing that wisdom that these much more senior employees could have provided. So it was kind of like almost kind of the blind leading the blind to a certain extent, right? But the staffing shortage has caused difficulties. As I mentioned, we don't have enough experience in the industry. We just dumped it off. So the lack of experience and high turnover rate has made it close to impossible to handle unusual or potentially hazardous situations efficiently on the fly. So any anytime there's something abnormal that is not sequentially correct to our mind, we go back to the SOPs and refer to them and see how to handle them instead of just kind of handling them on the fly based on experience, which is faster and more efficient. So, and let me explain to you why. Now, all these incidents that have happened is because the, the training departments of these airlines are designed to just push out cookie cutter pilots. So every single pilot that comes out of a training department, which whether it's United, Delta, American, SkyWest, et cetera, we are pushing out a cookie cutter mold of a pilot. It is up to the captains out there to mold these new pilots and provide them with wisdom, mentorship, and experience so they can handle abnormal situations on the fly, ab- abiding by SOP, obviously. So it is a difference of a pilot responding to an air traffic control call that is unusual and be able to discern it and say, maybe they meant this. Let me give you an example of, let me give you a few examples. So recently we had an MEL or a minimum equipment list item for our, for the forward cargo compartment. So the MEL stated that we cannot put any cargo except ballast, which is basically sandbags in the forward cargo compartment. And I had to explain to the rampers why this was happening. So I went down there and I said, hey, we have this happen. You know, we we have an MEL. You cannot put any bags in a forward cargo compartment. And unfortunately, they had already placed about half the bags in there. So they had to unload everything and put it in the back. And I explained to them why and the reasoning behind it. And I had to kind of help them walk them through the process of how to do that. Because now we come across bags not fitting. You know, we don't have enough bags. I'm sorry, we don't have enough space for those bags. So now what are we going to do with those bags? What are we going to do with the bags that were checked at the jet bridge? We couldn't fit in the plane. What are we going to do with the bags that could not make it at all? Now we have to either let the passengers know or have them deplane. Or There's a lot of components than just the MEL. In training, we tell you, hey, we have to read and understand the MEL together with the captain and the FO. But nothing teaches you how to handle rampers that have no idea what they're doing. They've never seen that happen before. They don't understand it. And when I'm trying to explain this to one of the lead ramp agents, they were looking at me like, 
They didn't process it. They were, is this a weight and balance issue? Why are we able to put bags there? And I explained, even after I explained it, the reason why they were still unsure of what to do. And they said, well, what do we do with when we have all the bags? Like we send the numbers and how do we know? Is it, is a plane going to tip back or, and that caused delays because now everyone moves slower because they've never seen that happen. Whereas if we had an employer or a ramper that had been in the company for five plus years, I bet you they would have seen that happen before. Oh yeah, we got it. Don't worry about it. We got it. But this was not the case. That's an example of an experience. And back to the example of cookie cutter pilots, there's only so much we can place in the training footprint to teach you how to handle certain situations. We teach SOP, how to reference them, how to operate the aircraft based on our procedures. But what if an air traffic controller gives you a different instruction that you've never heard before? How do you handle that? Recently, traveling to Denver, we were given an instruction to, and this is the instruction they gave us. They said, Skywest 4700, speed 250, descend and maintain 13,000. So right off the bat, what I would have done, if I didn't know any better, I would have dialed back to speed, slow down first, then continue my descent to 13,000. But I interpreted that instruction as something I already knew and I assumed the, the controller wanted, which was the typical Sky was 4,700, descent and maintain 13,250 knots in the transition. And that is what my captain replied back to the controller. And the captain and I had a discussion about that. And we said, I think that's what he meant. And when he repeated back, the, repeated back that instruction, as we typically worded back, is descent and maintain 13,250 knots in the transition, the controller didn't correct us, which clarified and confirmed our assumptions that that's what the air traffic controller wanted. So what does this mean, 250 in transitions? Just really quick. What it means is that the airplane, when we're flying at the flight levels, you know, two niners, three zeros, whatever, we're flying in Mach. That's where we're indicating is Mach. At a certain altitude, when the Mach matches our indicated airspeed, it transitions to that airspeed. It's going to maintain an airspeed. And that's typically the instruction. All of our arrivals or standard arrivals are that way. They state, you know, 200, the typical airspeed is 280 knots. And that's how we understand. That's what made the assumption and we were correct. But in an experienced pilot, if they would have slowed down to 250 and then descended to 13,000, they would not have abided by that transition, by, I mean, by that restriction. So now this pilot is, an inexperienced pilot would have done 250 knots and now would have broken a rule on the arrival, potentially. It could have caused a loss of separation. Again, one of those things. Another incident I had is we were descending and the air traffic controller was a center controller told us to descend via the arrival. The lowest altitude on the arrival, it was 6,000 feet. However, the transition was based off of different runways. So what happened was that I asked the controller is like, do you want us to fly the two six right transition or what? And he said, I, I don't know. That's going to be approach control. And I said, okay. And again, we had, I had a discussion with the captain. I said, okay, well, if he doesn't know what transition, he cannot clear us down to the bottom altitude of the arrival. He has to give us an intermediate altitude to cross. And I know some of you are just, this is way over your head, but this is more meant for the pilots. But what I'm trying to say is, is the, the interpretation and catching those little, catching those little things is what experience teaches us. The only experience will teach us how to handle those situations and to question those instructions. Because when you're in training, you're taught, you're, you're taught that you just follow instructions, that ATC is infallible. 
And most of your training, if you're a private pilot or instrument pilot, you just do what ATC tells you to do. You don't think twice about it. But the more you fly, you realize that air traffic controllers make mistakes themselves. And you have to question and kind of pull apart their instructions and clarify certain things. You know, sometimes we are told descend via, which means that we descend via the altitude restrictions and we have to abide by the speed restrictions as well. But sometimes we say, you know, they'll say something descend via or, you know, the speeds. They say, hey, descend via, except maintain 300 knots. Okay. And then we go to another controller and they say, you know, I buy by the, the airspeeds. I'm like, okay. So there's a little bit of miscommunication or, or there's a breakdown in the shared mental model between center and approach. Who knows? But we are able to detect that only with experience. And you only get to see that if you fly and fly often. So it's very important, this experience, that we cannot replace it with training. Training will give you a certain amount of, you know, to operate the aircraft safely in a very chronological time frame. When like kind of step one, step two, step three, this is what we do now. This is what we're going to happen next. But sometimes when you're out in the line, things happen quickly and you have to be able to adjust. As I mentioned before, there's been a lot of runway incursions or air traffic control placing aircraft on active runways as there's another aircraft on approach. And on another trip I had, we had a similar situation where the tower controller cleared us for takeoff on a runway that there was a another airplane on a five-mile final. And the captain recognized this and he took action to prevent or to minimize the delay on the runway. But if he did not have that experience, he would have done how procedurally we were supposed to do things. So you take the runway, you check the heading, now you increase thrust to 40%. Then once it's stabilized at 40%, we increase to takeoff thrust and we roll down the runway. That would have taken an additional five seconds, which could have closed the gap. With that, that gap between the aircraft on final and us would have been much closer. But this captain recognized that. And before we even took the runway, he started to increase that thrust to 40%. So then when we took the runway, the thrust was already stabilized. And when I took the controls, all I have to do was increase thrust to takeoff thrust and we were on our way. That's just based on the experience. And that was a non-issue. If it was someone else with less experience, they would have, okay, press OP, we have to go on the runway, we have to do this, we have, you know, increase. So it would have been very chronological instead of things happening, multiple things at once. So a lot of these incidents are just also based off of just, I mean, it could be a big, it's a big one, experience. However, there is potentially expectation bias also, there's distractions. They're not abiding by this, the sterile cockpit rule. There could have been other things happening, but I can tell you right now that experience is a big one. And like I said before, it's not just pilots. It's with air traffic control. I have air traffic control friends that are telling me that the same thing is happening with air traffic controllers. They're procedurally correct, but because of lack of experience, they're not able to handle certain situations quickly and efficiently. And with us, pilots, we can abide... By SOP, but sometimes it's not the best. Just because we have a limit in our SOP doesn't mean we have to push the limit. We can come up with solutions on the fly to still abide by our SOPs. For example, stabilize approach criteria. Just because we have that doesn't mean we have to push the limits of the SOP or we have to, as long as we're abiding by them, we can come up with creative solutions to be well prepared for any potential um mishaps, I guess you can say. Another ex another example of experience in air traffic control is uh, we were flying into Chicago and we were following a 777. 
And air traffic controller told us, you're following a 777, caution wake turbulence. And we said, got it. As we were on final for runway 28 center, EVA, the 777, EVA cargo, they went around. We were still with the approach controller. EVA was with tower. And once the approach controller switched us over to tower, tower immediately says, Skywest 4700, go around, bird strike on the runway is closed. So we went around and we got transferred to approach control. But now it was a different controller. This controller moved us in front of that 777. The, the controller found, found a gap and was able to mitigate that threat of wake turbulence from a way bigger plane than us and put us in front. Whereas the other controller kept us there and it was just, just doing his job, procedurally correct, hey, just vectoring airplanes. But this one found a solution to prevent a threat or minimize or mitigate that threat of wake turbulence by putting us in front of that 777. So that was really nice. That was really cool to see. We saw that 777 extend the downwind. Then we both ended up turning our left base at the same time. And it was, it was like, it was a choreographed beauty, what he did. I ended up thanking the controller. I was like, hey, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Because now we don't have to worry about that wake turbulence when we're coming in to land. There's a lot of examples that I see out there. And I'm still learning. Captains sometimes have, sometimes have to cue me. Hey, we might end up a little high on this because we don't have an arrival. So that cues me in to do certain things. Bring out spoilers. Increase the, the rate of descent. So I'm still learning. I still feel like a new guy. I'm still learning about landings and finding the perfect technique for it. But I'm telling you, this experience deal, super important. And we're missing a lot of it. And... Now, to go a little bit deeper, if you noticed that all these incidents are happening mostly to the big guys, United, American, Southwest, very few of them have been a regional carrier. And back to the story before COVID, the technical, I'm sorry, not the technical, but the normal progression of a pilot is to go from a CFI to a regional to mainline. And for years, for decades, the regional airlines are pretty much a pilot farm for the big guys, for United, Delta, American, etc. So to make it to these bigger airlines, a pilot would have to spend a minimum, a minimum of around, I would say, I would say minimum, more than average, more of an average, about five years at a regional airline before they could actually be competitive to move on. We had, even before, even with the pilot shortage, even with all the retirements that were happening, Typically, a pilot would have to spend a few years at a regional before they would actually be considered or even looked at to be hired at United, American, etc. But now, all these airlines are hiring at lower minimums. And when I'm talking about lower minimums, I'm not talking about the mandatory 1,500-hour minimum. I'm talking about PIC time. Most of them have gotten rid of that, which is a very important numbers, a very important flying experience. PIC is pilot in command. That means you have some captain time. And a lot of airlines have gotten away with that. They say, we don't need it because they need to hire more pilots. So like I said before, the regionals, where would you, you would cut your teeth in 121 operations, airline operations. You would spend three to four years as an, as an FO accumulating 4,000 hours or so. Then you upgrade to captain and spend two to three years as a captain. And then by the time you got to the training department of United American or the big guys, you would already have a lot of experience and training would go so much more smoothly because you already know. Once you once you fly a jet and you train to get your certification or your, um, what do you call them? Sorry, your, your rate. Oh, wow, Jesus, it's escaping me. Your type rating, there you go. In a the, in the particular jet, your next one makes it easier. 
So going from a, let's say you fly the CRJ, a jet's a jet. The systems kind of are the same. There's a complexity involved, but it's basically the same concept. And you already have the experience of five plus years flying airline operations. So that's what it used to be back before COVID, even before COVID, decades. That's how it's been. But now these airlines are hiring from a different pool of pilots. Now they're hiring straight out of school. So you have pilots from UND and Embry-Riddle that are coming with absolutely no airline experience and they're struggling. I've talked to a union rep of one of the airlines stating that they've have, they're having issues with students failing and having difficulties in having to add a lot of ad sessions to their training. An ad session is basically... When your instructor sees that you're not up to par with what their training footprint is, or, you know, hey, by this point in your training, you should be up to par or you should be proficient with this maneuver, but you're not, they will recommend an ad session. But these training departments are not catered to that kind of pilot. They're not catered to that pilot that came straight out of school. They're catered to that pilot that has four, 5,000 hours of experience with at minimum 2,000 hours of PIC time. And for us, the regional guys, the CFIs, the UND, Embry-Riddle graduates, that's our bread and butter. Our training department is catered to that pilot, that pilot that has never touched a jet. So when you got out in the line, you have a very good foundation of what 121 experience is. And this, at the regional level, is where you cut your teeth. But the big guys, they haven't adjusted to that. So now they're sending pilots out there or they're struggling or they're behind the curve. They're meeting the minimum requirements, but they don't have the experience that they used to have. Legally, they're good. And if you're a pilot, you know about currency and proficiency. So you have a bunch of pilots out there that are current and that they're, you know, they are, they are legally able to fly these aircraft, but they are not, don't have the experience that they would have maybe eight years ago. And that's one of the causes that is, you know, one of the reasons these things are happening right now because we just lack the experience. And the FAA is going to start getting involved because they're going to go into the training departments of these airlines and they're going to say, hey, why are you having a lot of failures? And they're going to have to adjust. But it's going to take longer to adjust those training departments because they're so massive and they have multiple airplanes in their fleet. Whereas the regionals, we have one or two, that's it. So we're able to quickly modify our training footprint in our training plan to adjust quickly to the deficiencies that we can detect because everything is data-driven. So we start collecting data from all the training that we do and we're able to adjust based on that, that feedback that we get from the data and student feedback as well. So as you can see, because of the lack of staff and the airlines wanting to rush in and hire as many possible, we're causing inadvertently causing this vacuum of inexperience and because we don't have experience or we're lacking experience as an industry as a whole it's kind of hard to mentor so it's more important than ever now if you have experience to take those mentorship opportunities mentor the new guys to come in be a little bit more patient because we need it so okay i've been talking about all this lack of experience and how we're we're just don't have enough experienced mentors to train the new guys so what do we do? In the lack of experience, we need to slow down. We need to communicate more than ever with the other pilot and say, I don't understand. Can you explain that to me so we can be on the same page? Why did you do that? Why did you enter that particular number in the box? What did that air traffic controller meant to say? 
or what was that interaction between you and approach control, I don't understand. Have teaching moments, but slow down. Because there's a saying that I like to use that I picked up in the military, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So yes, follow SOP. Follow your policies and procedures per your company. And eventually, you're going to learn how to speed things up because your peripheral is going to widen and your situational awareness is going to improve with time. But it's just going to take some time and patience and slowing down. And in fact, that is exactly what the FAA is doing at some of the airports in JFK. Because they don't have enough staff to handle the volume of flights coming out of those airports, they've actually reduced the number of flights or slots that are coming out of or that airlines are operating. Airlines have actually requested to reduce some of their slots so they can ease the pressure in air traffic control. So they understand the concept of slowing down, but we also have to do it as pilots. We have to slow down, follow procedure, and eventually, a few hundred hours down the line, you'll start picking it up, you'll start feeling more comfortable, and you'll begin to fly the airplane by the seat of your pants. So it's very important, guys and girls, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, to slow down. In the absence of experience, you need to slow down. Tell the pilot when you feel overwhelmed or saturated. Be open to coaching. Say, hey, please let me know. I am open to suggestions on how to do this better so you can build it into your repertoire of experience. Okay, how to handle a certain situation. Hey, Oakland Center kept you really high and now approach controller wants to dive you right, you know, just slam dunk you right down on, you know, two-way left approach. You already know how to handle it. You start knowing the aircraft. Okay, flap one, full boards, gear down. Let's lose some altitude, right? But we don't teach that in the training department. That's just something you learn in line. Super important. Anyways, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being part of this little community with me. I really do appreciate it. If you have any comments, please go ahead and email me. The information is in the show notes. Until next episode, I'm wishing you tailwinds and sunshine. Hey, fellow aviation enthusiasts, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you for a huge favor. If you could please go to the platform where you're listening this podcast in and leave a review, some feedback, and some comments. I really do appreciate that. I want to make the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast your podcast. I also want to give a huge thanks to my friends and coworkers that have shared the podcast with their friends and family. That means the world to me. I really appreciate your support and your subscriptions. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me at the CFI at gmail.com or you can message me directly on Instagram at climbvx that's C-L-I-M-B as in Bravo B as in Victor X-Ray you can reach me there with your suggestions or any feedback once again thank you from the bottom of my heart I appreciate the support and until next episode I wish you tailwinds and sunshine see ya the statements made on the show are my own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of my employer